And if you would remain standing and listen to this portion of the story of God as it is written in the book that we love. From the Gospel of Mark, the third chapter. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue and a man was there who had a withered hand. They watched him to see whether he would cure him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man that had the withered hand, come forward. Then he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. He looked around at them with anger. He was grieved at the hardness of hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately conspired with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. The story of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Many, many years ago when I was a Boy Scout, I had the opportunity as a young scout to go on a high adventure backpack trek. And it was in the Rocky Mountains. And part of that trek included a stop at a, at a camp where some more experienced and older scouts were stationed. And they were there to teach scouts about rock climbing. And so I had an experience where I got to learn about rock climbing and, and try it out. And these older scouts taught us everything that we needed to know before they gave us a chance to try to climb a rock. And one of the things that they taught us was about the safety rope, the guide rope. And they had a rule. Only two hands could be on the rope at a time. And so I watched a more senior scout scale the rock in front of me, go up to the top, put in an anchor, attach a safety rope and drop it down. And they tied me to that safety rope on a harness and I was allowed to start climbing. But the rule was the scout at the top would keep two hands on the rope. And if I put one hand on the rope, he would take one hand off. And if I put two hands on the rope, he would take both hands off. So I started to climb and it didn't take long for me to slip and grab the rope. And when I grabbed the rope, he let go. And I received a very painful but memorable lesson about what's important in rock climbing. When I hear this story from the third chapter of Mark, I think of my lesson on the rock. Some of the people in this story don't seem to trust Jesus' assessment of what's important. I've learned from Rabbi Scott Hare that one of the best ways to engage the story of God is for me to put myself in it and to ask, where would I be in this story? What role would I have played? Would I have been a congregant in the synagogue that day just watching it all unfold? Or would I have actually played one of the roles in this story? One of the players? So when I ask that question, I have to start by saying, well, who are the players? And the first one that comes to mind is the man with the withered hand. And while I'm not afraid of miraculous healing, that doesn't scare me off at all. There are some things in the man with the withered hand's behavior that give me pause. First off, in this time, in this place, in this culture, having a withered hand was a source of shame. The Gospel of Luke tells us that it was the man's right hand, and that was his symbol of power and strength. This man could not provide for himself or his family in the way that he was supposed to. And so this is not something that he would have advertised. He would have hidden this. 
And Jesus calls out to him and says, rise up into the middle of everyone here and show them what's wrong with you. And he does it. I'm not that guy. I don't so easily show people what's wrong with me, at least not on purpose. The second thing is Jesus says to him, stretch out your hand. And he does that. Jesus doesn't pray over the hand. He doesn't look at it and give a diagnosis. He doesn't touch it, say any magic religious words. He just says, stretch it out. It doesn't make sense to me, but the man does it. And I don't identify with that either. I like to make sense of what Jesus is asking me to do before I do it. Not the one to do first, but this man seems to do first whether or not he understands. So I'm going to rule that out. I don't think this is the guy that I play in this story. The next people that come to mind are the disciples. Now, I know they're not explicitly mentioned in this text, but we know they're there. They would have followed their rabbi into the synagogue on the Sabbath. They would have been there as good students should be. And we also know they were there because they're the ones that witnessed this story told it over and over and over for years and made sure that it was written down so that we have this gospel to read. So we know they were there, and i got to tell you, I always like to be in this role. I like to see myself as a disciple. And I can see myself, on my good days, I can see myself as the beloved disciple, someone like John who would know exactly what's going on, you know, walk in behind Jesus, stand in the back and kind of be smug, knowing I know what lesson you are all about to get because I've already learned this. So good luck. And on my worst days, I'm even comfortable being someone like Peter. You know, the guy that always finds a way to put his foot in his mouth. And I can see Peter in this setting kind of sliding up to Jesus as Jesus calls the man forward and tugging on his robe and saying, Dude, it's the Sabbath. Ixnay on the ealing hay. Not today. You're going to get us in trouble. You know, just completely missing the point. So beloved disciple, foot-in-mouth disciple, I'm okay, or somewhere in between. I like to see myself here. But for the sake of being thorough, I have to ask myself, would I have been a Pharisee? Because they're a part of this story as well. My first response is no way. No way would I be a Pharisee. These people were dedicated to their faith, hyper-religious, and in tune to the letter of the law. That's not me. I'm not the rules guy. And once more, I think I would have recognized Jesus. I think I would have seen his love and his teaching and his healing. That I would have seen this withered hand open up and I would have been in awe. And I would have recognized who was standing before me. These Pharisees don't. They miss it so bad that they leave the synagogue and go plot with their enemies to kill Jesus. Pharisees opposed Roman control, and Herodians supported Roman control because of Herod. And these two groups did not play well together. But the Pharisees are so upset by what Jesus says and does that they leave the synagogue, go to their enemies, and say, we have to kill this man. The text even tells us that the Pharisees went into the synagogue hoping to catch Jesus in the act of healing on the Sabbath so they could accuse him of a capital crime. 
They didn't just fail to recognize who God was. They wanted to kill him. To the Pharisees, obeying God's law was serious business. Observing the Sabbath day and keeping it holy is one of the commandments. Exodus 20, verse 8 through 11 states it. Don't do any work, for in six days God made heaven, earth, and sea, and everything in them. He rested on the seventh day. Therefore God blessed the Sabbath day, and he set it apart as a holy day. Now, I wouldn't argue with the Pharisees about the importance of the Sabbath. But is healing really working? Well, that might seem like a rigid interpretation to us. Rabbinical understanding at that time would only allow for medical care for someone on the Sabbath if they were in great danger. In fact, the rabbinical ruling of that time said if you had a broken arm on the Sabbath, you had to wait till the Sabbath was over to set the bone. And these people knew that. So withered hand doesn't rank high enough. It's not great danger. It's for that reason that some scholars even think that the Pharisees brought the man with the withered hand in with them as a plant to catch Jesus. Because they knew it didn't qualify for healing. So if they could get Jesus to heal this guy, then they'd catch him. And they did. They caught him. He healed the man and broke Sabbath law. But this wasn't even the first time that he had done that. Just prior to this story in Mark 3, Jesus and his disciples are walking through the fields on another Sabbath. And they get hungry and they start plucking the heads of grain as they walk and eating them. And they're accused of working on the Sabbath. And in Mark 2, 27, Jesus responds to that accusation by saying the Sabbath was made to serve us. We weren't made to serve the Sabbath. So immediately preceding this story of healing, Jesus basically says the Sabbath was given as a means to bless you, not to enslave you. And we know that, right? We know the value of rest. We know that when we rest, we can't attain, we can't achieve. We can only receive. The story of God testifies to the blessing of Sabbath rest. In researching the Old Testament book of Ruth, Ellen Davis, a distinguished professor of Bible and practical theology at Duke Divinity, found a deeper understanding of rest as belonging. And that is interesting, that the Hebraic understanding had rest and belonging intertwined. They went together. As we heard a moment ago, God labored for six days, rested on the seventh day. Man and woman were created on the sixth day, just in time to enter God's rest. Man and woman are created on the sixth day, so the first thing that they can do on the seventh day is belong with God. Without rest, we don't belong. Without belonging, we can't rest. It's not just a shriveled hand, it's a shriveled heart. Neither has belonging, neither can rest, and neither can receive. In working so hard to cling to what they knew about the Sabbath, the Pharisees actually fail to arrive at rest. They're supposed to be resting, but they can't receive. Biblical scholar A.T. Robertson said that we see this sad reality in the vivid movement of Jesus' emotions in verse 5. 
As Jesus watches the Pharisees choose doctrine over helping someone else, he's angry. But in the very next phrase, his righteous anger is tempered by grief. In recognition of hearts so attached to work and control, Jesus grieves their shriveled hearts. In spite of all their exhaustive efforts to uphold doctrine, they are not in a position to receive anything, even a new revelation of God's healing love. So much so that the living God stares them in the face and they can't see him. A few years ago, we were blessed in New Heights to learn about the Priscilla Catacombs. And you have a picture on the front of your bulletins of, of one of the paintings in the Priscilla Catacombs. Outside of Rome are these caves. And one of those caves is called the Priscilla Catacombs. It's where early Christians gathered to worship because they had to do so in secrecy to avoid persecution. And in these caves, they drew on the walls. And some of the earliest examples of Christian art are found in these caves. And this is one of those pictures. It's a picture of a woman in worship. She's on her tiptoes, which is a symbol of dancing. And she stands in a posture of worship like this. And as we've wrestled with this in New Heights and asked ourselves, what does it mean to stand and live in a posture of worship? We've had to come face to face with some hard truths. And when I go through an experience with the Lord, when I go through a trial, when I learn something, I find a truth and I grab it and I hold it and I say, this is true. I know this to be true. I've been through the fire. I've put it to the test. This is right. The problem is when I hold it like this, Nothing else can be added to it. And when I share it, I share it like this. But if I hold what I've got before the Lord like this, not only can I receive new revelation from the Lord, I can receive new revelation from you. You can see what I've got and come up and say, Daryl, I know that. I've got something to tell you about that. Here it is. And I add your truth to my truth, and now I've got a greater understanding. And also, when I stand like this, I can give what I have away. I can share it. This is not the posture that the Pharisees are in. They're holding tightly to their doctrine. They can't see the forest for the trees. They're standing in a posture with which, if I'm honest, I'm a little bit too familiar. In his book, The Life You've Always Wanted, John Ortberg writes that Jesus shocked people by saying religious leaders like the Pharisees, who observed all the religious boundary markers, were becoming increasingly dead to love. Jonathan Swift wrote it this way, most of us have just enough religion to make us hate, but not enough to make us love. But then we have Jesus, the most important character in this story. Jesus is the perfect example of surrender and submission to receive love from the Father and give it away. Jesus refuses to use the doctrine of Sabbath law as an excuse for not walking in love toward his neighbor. 
Jesus asked the crowd to consider, is your Sabbath law moving you toward loving God and loving other people, or is it moving you away? Consider that the purpose of the law is not to get you to follow the right rules. The purpose of the law is to produce a changed heart. In one question, Jesus reveals the kingdom. Verse 4. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save life or to kill? That word save there is the Greek word sozo. In fact, anytime you see the word save, save, anything like that in the New Testament, it's coming from the Greek word sozo. And while that's accurate, it does mean safe. In Greek, it actually has a broader understanding. It means safe, delivered, healed, and whole. Is that what's going on here? A shriveled hand is opened up, and we're asked to equate that with safe, delivered, healed, and whole. I mean, we remember that Sabbath doctrine said it's unlawful to heal on the Sabbath unless someone is in great danger. Is Jesus suggesting that his healing actions are in the face of great danger? Maybe so. Maybe Jesus is asking those in the synagogue to broaden their definition of what great danger looks like. Maybe anytime I'm not in a posture of receiving... Anytime I'm clinging so tightly to my present understanding that I cannot receive a deeper revelation of God, I'm in great danger. When my heart is wrapped around Christian principles that I know to be right and true, maybe I'm in danger of missing the living God staring me in the face. Maybe that's the kind of danger that requires sozo. The lesson of my rock climbing experience was that by wrapping my hands around the rope, I was setting myself up for a fall because no hands remained open to the rock. I'm starting to think that maybe I would have been a Pharisee in this story. Perhaps I have more in common with the Pharisees than I'm comfortable admitting. And to be completely honest, I've even witnessed a miraculous healing. And just like the Pharisees, I missed it. And I held on to my expectations. A little over 18 months ago, I, along with many of you, was invited to join a prayer journey of healing for one of our members, Libby Bebinger. And if you knew Libby, you knew that she had been struggling with ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease for about 16 years by the time I was asked to join in this prayer journey for her healing. And by that time, she was reduced to a wheelchair. She couldn't walk. She couldn't talk. She couldn't move. The only thing she could do was use her eyes, her pupils, to communicate with a computer interface that allowed her to type words out by the movement of her pupils, one letter at a time, and craft sentences. And it took forever for her to put a sentence together. And at the end of her typing, she could select read, and a computer voice would read the sentence for her. Last April, I was in New Heights, and we were in a time of praise and worship. And I saw that Libby had rolled into the back of the the room, as she did every Sunday, with her family pushing her in a wheelchair. And after we'd been worshiping for a while, I saw there was something going on back there. There was a commotion. And as I focused in, I could see that Libby's mom was holding her around the waist and holding her up. And that she was standing up and Libby's sister was back there holding up her head. 
And as I saw it, other people saw it. And our community started to rally and ran to her. And pretty soon, 25, 30 people were holding Libby up completely. She's standing in a posture of worship, praising God. Everybody around her that is holding her up, if they can't get to her, they're laying hands on the people that are holding her up. Little kids are weaving in there and putting hands on her and praying. It was incredible. The room was thick with the Spirit. And no one was unaffected. It changed our community forever. And I knew it was a sign. I knew it was the Lord saying, yes, I am listening. I'm answering your prayers. All those times that you've spent laying hands on Libby, all those prayer requests that you've offered, all the times that you fasted together, I'm moving into that. And so I had expectations of greater miracles to come. What I didn't realize that my, is that my belief was conditioned by what I thought those miracles should look like. What I wanted. I wasn't listening to God, and I wasn't even listening to Libby. How could I? I wasn't in a posture of receiving. I wasn't resting or belonging. I was in a position of hyper-religious activity, doing everything I could for the cause, for the glory of the Lord and for Libby. I was busy. Two weeks after Libby stood and worshipped in New Heights, she died. And I was angry. And I was sad. And it was clear to me that whatever the Lord was doing, he and I were not on the same page. The end of Psalm 81 offers the voice of the Lord's lament for a situation like this. It says, but my people didn't listen. Israel paid no attention. So I let go of the reins and I told them, go, run, do it your own way. Oh, dear people, will you listen to me now? Israel, will you follow my map? In the healing of my friend Libby, I didn't listen. I paid no attention. I was so busy wrestling the reins that I missed it. I didn't even hear Libby in the one or two sentences that she would type out when we were together. I didn't hear the Lord grieving my shriveled heart and my shriveled hands and saying, Oh, Daryl, would you listen to me now? Would you follow my map? I wrestled for the next six months. I wrestled my doctrine, trying to make it fit what had happened, and I couldn't do it. Dallas Willard said that spirituality wrongly understood or pursued is a major source of human misery, and I was miserable. In worship one Sunday last December, I reached the end of my rope. And I gave up. There was nothing else I could do. I was out of energy. I had no other recourse but surrender and rest. And with the help of my community, I crumbled into a posture of receiving. And I told the Lord, I can't make this work. You didn't do what I thought you were going to do. And you're not behaving the way I expected you to behave. I want to listen to you. But where is your map in this? And in prayer and community, the still small voice spoke. And it said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives 
and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the burdened and battered free. These are the words that Jesus spoke to begin his earthly ministry. He read them from Isaiah 61 in the synagogue. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set the burdened and battered free. And I also received the blessing of the Spirit. I received my memory back. The Lord took me back and gave me the clarity of my memory to see what had happened and what Libby had said. And all the times that we were with her and all the times that we laid hands on her hours at her house praying for her healing, saying and declaring great things. You're going to get out of this chair. You're going to walk. You're going to live a normal life. You're going to be a testimony to the Lord's healing power. Libby could only type out one or two sentences when we were together. Her first sentence was always one of gratitude. It was always, thank you for being here. Thank you for spending time with me. Thank you for loving me so much that you'll come to my house and hang out with me and pray for me. And then the Lord showed me the second thing was her prayer requests. And the only thing she ever asked the Lord for as we were making these great requests of the Lord, she asked to be able to stand and worship in new heights. And she did. The Lord showed me, your friend Libby, she's free. She's more free than you understand. She's safe, delivered, healed, and whole. But not just in her death. She was safe when she was with you. She was free when she was with you, and you couldn't see it. You don't have to figure it all out. You don't have to make sense of it all. Rest and belong in me. Let go of that rope that you're holding onto so tightly. It's just a guide. It's not the rock. And I finally felt the Lord grieving my shriveled hands and my shriveled heart. And through Holy Spirit-empowered community, the Lord called me to rest and remember where I belong. I don't know if the Pharisees in this story were blessed to receive the grace that I experienced after they left the synagogue that day. The story doesn't tell us if any of them ever came to the end of their rope, surrendered, and received the God that grieved their shriveled hearts. But I do know they were and are loved by the same God whose patience I have yet to exhaust. I know that just like me and Libby and everyone in here, they were God's favorite. There's nothing that God wouldn't do to give them rest and belonging. And there's nothing that God wouldn't do to make them safe, delivered, healed, and whole. And if I had the opportunity, I hope I could look them face to face. And from one Pharisee to another, tell them God is our rock. And he makes the rope irrelevant.